This month's episode of Practical Significance is sponsored by the musical comedy film, No Degrees of Freedom. David and Gertrude are scientists who have active research lives, but they have been cutting corners by not bringing statisticians on board in their grant proposals. When a mysterious stranger appears and warns them of the dangers, they rebuff her. Suddenly, they find themselves in a strange musical world in which they are not themselves, but are actually their research. And they are forced to see their work from a new perspective with showstoppers like making the usual assumptions and this looks random enough to me and thoughtful ballads such as I want to be statistically significant to you and everyone's a little bit biased. You'll be engrossed by this charming story. You'll sing along with the Beastie Boys cameo appearance in the song The Skills to Baze the Bills and shed a tear with the love song Two moments were not enough. Here are some of the reviews. The Times writes, No Degrees of Freedom is a musical for all ages, but especially the dark ages. This plot regresses way beyond the mean, says the Post, and goes on to say, This is the musical I hoped I would never hear. And the Observer added, There is nothing like a good musical, and this is nothing like a good musical. So, of course, you can skip the movie, and just remember to consult with a professional statistician before you start your research. Take it from David and Gertrude. This is a good idea. And now, on with the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Practical Significance, a podcast to inspire listeners with compelling stories from statistics and data science and to propel data-driven careers forward. Here are your hosts, the ASA's Director of Strategic Initiatives, Donna Lalone, and Executive Director, Ron Wasserstein. Well, welcome everyone to Practical Significance. It's hard to believe actually that another month has gone by, but Ron and I are super excited to be here with our colleagues and friends from the Committee on Professional Ethics, Jing and Stephanie. And uh, per usual, Jing and Stephanie, we start out by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners, tell us a little bit about your day job. And so Jing, I'll start with you. Hi, everyone. It's my pleasure to participate in this podcast. I've done a podcast before with the JAMA. Now, this time with ASA, it's, it's equally exciting. So I'm a professor of statistics at Southern Methodist University. You know, joining SMU was my first job. I've been staying there for 17 years and I enjoy teaching. I enjoy doing collaboration work with my fellow researchers and I also love working with students. And now I'm also the director of graduate studies and director of recruitment committee. And of course, chair of the committee oh. on professional ethics, but that's not your day job. So uh, <laughs> more on that to come. Equally, <laughs> equally pleasure. <laughs> um, and Stephanie, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. All right. Thank you, Donna. And thank you, Ron, for inviting me. It's a wonderful opportunity to talk about ASA and how important ethics is to them, especially our work on the Committee on Professional Ethics. So I'm Stephanie Shipp, the Interim Director of the Social and Decision Analytics Division in the Biocomplexity Institute at the University of Virginia. 
We like to say that we are doing data science because we work with local communities of all sizes to bring data science to answer their questions. And so we involve our communities very closely in, in our work. And we do that because they provide context to the findings. A lot of times there's puzzling things in the data that we don't understand and they clearly understand or can explain that. So our sponsors, they're extremely broad and diverse. As I mentioned, they include small and medium-sized local governments. We work with statistical agencies and the U.S. Army. And in the past, we've worked with um, large Fortune 500 companies and other agencies as well. So a strong focus of ours is addressing challenges through an equity and ethics lens. Thanks, Stephanie and Jing, and it is really wonderful to have you here. So Jing, we'll start with you. Some of our listeners may know that the ethical guidelines for statistical practice were recently revised. Can you just tell us a little bit about the process for revising the guidelines? Uh, Sure. So I'd like to start with pointing out the revision effort was directed by three main goals. So the first is to update the ASA ethical guidelines for statistical practice. The second is to make these clearer and more concrete. And the third is to ensure that the contents were recognizable to data scientists, statisticians, and anyone who utilizes data science or statistical practice. So those are our main goals. To you know, achieve these main goals, we have formed a work group to work intensively on the revision in 2021. So there are five members in this work group. Me and Rochelle uh, Trachtenberg are the co-chairs. The other three members are Matt Botelli, Jason Gillerton, and Marsha Wiseman. So we meet almost every Tuesday afternoon for two hours in 2021. So that means each of us have devoted at least 100 hours to this effort. Each of us took turns to lead the discussion of the eight principles. And then we went through each element, discussing whether to keep it, if keep it, how to edit it, and also whether we need to add more elements. So previously there are 52 adamants, and now we have 61 adamants. And we spend a lot of time on the wording too. Uh, I want to point out Jason, one of our work group members, so, so good at wording. It's like, I cannot believe he's a statistician, rather a professional writer. We're so fortunate. And we try to be clear and at the same time succinct. And also at each of the monthly COPE meeting, the work group Uh, report to the committee on the progress of the revision and we take in the other committee members suggestion and uh, during this process the other committee members who are not in the work group will attend the work group meeting on every Tuesday from time to time too. So at the end of 2021 the committee has approved the revision proposed by the work group and after that at the committee COPE, we present the revised uh, document to the ESA board. So that is the whole process. I hope it's clear. Thanks, Jing. Very clear. And the board was super impressed, not just with the outcome, but with the process itself. And so thanks for that. So Stephanie, Jing mentioned statistical practice in there, and the guidelines refer to statistical practice and statistical practitioner Could you say a little bit about why the working group adopted this terminology? So, Ron, 
the committee did that because they wanted the guidelines to apply to anyone that's producing statistics. And I like to um, go back to, this isn't a perfect quote, but a quote from Sally Keller, who was our former ASA president. And she always talks about statistics as the quintessential science crossing all disciplines. And so the working group adopted the terminology, sorry, I can't even say it, statistical practitioner for exactly that reason. Um, statistical practice is part of every domain and discipline, and the working group recognized that. So it includes activities um, such as designing data collection, developing and deploying models or algorithms, and summarizing, processing, analyzing, interpreting, or presenting data. They actually have a quote that says the ethical guidelines aim to promote accountability by informing those who rely on any aspect of statistical practice of the standards they should expect. So I think that they define this very broadly on purpose. It's anyone who engages in statistical practice, regardless of their job title, their profession, their level or field of degree. So this inclusivity, I think, was really at the heart of what they wanted to do. They wanted to embrace statistical practitioners across all domains and disciplines. The guidelines are intended to be for individuals. But the principles are also relevant to organizations that engage in statistical practice. And I think Jing is going to talk about that in a few minutes as well. Thanks, Stephanie. It's great that the guidelines are inclusive. And it was also fun for me when you mentioned Sally Keller to realize that she's been singing that same tune since I first met her when she was a brand new faculty member. And I was a grad student at Kansas State many, many years ago. So her song has been refined over the years, obviously, but she's been making the same point for a long time. So Jing, you added an appendix in the 2022 guidelines. And so why did the writing team feel like that was something that needed to be done? You know, Ron, first of all, I want to thank you for including this in the question list. This is a very good question. And I want to start by pointing out this appendix. Is, uh, this appendix is indeed a very important feature in this revised document. So this newly added appendix is about responsibilities of organizations and institutions employing statistical practice. So we recognize that the ASA guidelines are unlikely to be adhered to by institutions, employers. However, articulating the characteristics of an ethical workplace, supporting ethical statistical practice is everybody can see it, it's very important. So based on this consideration, um, the work group proposed to undertake an initiative to outline characteristics of an ethical workplace supporting ethical statistical practice. Now, these would be separable from ethical guidelines for statistical practice because employers are not necessarily able or willing to follow these specific guidelines, especially if they employ only some statistical practitioners, uh, they are not really uh, completely statistics businesses. So it's only part of their components related to statistical practice. So the work group hopes and intends that companies and organizations that have particular statistical practice components will commit to following the guidelines as part of their encouragement of ethical culture in the workplace. And we also recognize that the appendix only provides an outline of responsibilities of organizations and institutions employing statistical practice. So I want to point out 
that one of COPE's future projects is to provide a more comprehensive document that focuses on standards for ethical strategical practice at an institutional level, which any institution is free to adopt. These institutional guidelines will dive into the ethics of strategical practice from an organizational level, not a practitioner's level. And they will serve as a voluntary code of excellence that practitioners can look to as a sign the institution will support them. So by providing this additional document, hopefully, you know, by next year, we'll finish that. It will come as a, a counterpart or a supplement to the current ASA guideline and make this ethical guideline more complete, both at practitioner's level and institution's level. Stephanie, I should have acknowledged at the beginning that COPE has done a lot already to um, help people understand the ethical guidelines, including you helped organize with your colleague Harold from the committee, a series of, of workshops. And I was struck by a question that I think came up in each of the virtual workshops. And, and that was individuals asking for advice on how to integrate the guidelines into their professional practice, especially if, if they weren't already a, a part of the culture. And so I wonder if you could share some advice for individuals or teams who might want to bring the ethical guidelines to their workplace, kind of following up on the need to institutionalize them. Thanks, Donna. That's a great question. I think what struck me about the webinars, as well as the guidelines, um, which is really at the heart of the guidelines, is how important communications are across the board. And I often say to my projects or my project teams, you know, ethics needs to be an active part of the conversation around every project. But these conversations aren't easy. We all think we're ethical. We all think that we've looked at the variables in our algorithms and we're doing the best. It's always those unintended consequences that are often hard to anticipate up front. We need to get the questions right and we need language to guide us. And so what I've come to appreciate about the ethical guidelines is that they're an excellent guide to starting these conversations. And you don't have to do them all at one time. Um, I want to do a little bit of a segue to an example because I thought it was such a creative way to introduce ethical thinking into a project. But then I'll come back to more what I mean about how do you incorporate these ethical guidelines at different points in a project. So two summers ago, we were working with a professor at Iowa State, and it was on a project related to economic mobility in rural communities. And he led his team of students to work with these communities. The communities would ask the questions, and then the teams would work with the communities to answer those questions. They'd sometimes provide the data, and sometimes they didn't have data, so we'd have to figure out where to find it. But the first thing he did at the very beginning of the project was to ask the students about their views of rural America, both positive and negative. And so he used an online tool to capture this information for which then he could create a word cloud. And when the students saw the word cloud and they saw how overwhelmingly negative they had been about rural America, it was just you could see the aha moment. Their eyes got big and they were like, oh my gosh, you know. And so I thought it was just such a creative way to raise their awareness about the ethical dimensions of their work at the very beginning of that research project. So, you know, it takes a lot of creativity in thinking about how do you do this? Because I know when we have conversations here, we're all just like, well, we're using publicly available data and 
we don't think that there's unintended consequences of what we're doing there. It's hard to have them. But anyway, so what I would say is that before and during and at the completion of projects, that maybe pulling out particular sections of the guidelines. And so, for example, with these students, maybe the first part would be to look at part B, which is the responsibility to research subjects, data subjects, or those directly affected by statistical practices. And that covers things like data providence, provenance, transparency and assumptions and intentions, and acknowledging your known biases and limitations, among other things. So right away, that gives you language to guide that conversation and think about it. And then again, being a leader on one of those projects, such as the professor at Iowa, he could be looking at and working with the team to talk about the responsibilities of leaders, supervisors, and mentors in statistical practice. And there, again, here's where the communication comes in, the using the constructive discourse to focus on scientific principles and methodology, bringing in appropriate peer review or consultation when needed, and then promoting reproducibility and replication on all aspects of the work. So again, just such great guidance at the beginning of a project for both the team members and the team lead. So I think that, again, it's challenging. I really had an aha moment getting ready for this podcast, rereading the guidelines. And when that question, I said, oh my goodness, this is giving us the language that we need to have these conversations. So you can see, I got very excited about that. So my staff better watch out now. (laughs) Thanks, Stephanie. And your examples and analogy got me thinking too, something I hadn't thought about before, but I remember when one of my daughters got her first pair of eyeglasses and she started describing all the things that she could see that she didn't know she hadn't been able to see. And looking at the guidelines kind of provides a lens like that, where all of a sudden you're able to look at things in a way that you didn't think to look at them before, didn't know you could look at them. And I found them helpful in that way as well. And so I imagine that working on something like this so intently and thinking about it so hard changes you. So I'm going to ask both of you, maybe starting with Jing, how has service on the Committee on Professional Ethics changed your practice? Uh, Thank you for asking that question. And Ron, I would like to take this opportunity to give a shout out to the rest of the co-members who have also made significant contribution to the revision. I mentioned the five members in the work group. You know, there is a selfish uh, kind of a purpose in this because when we present the document to the ESA board, we just say COPE, our committee professional ethics uh, practice, I'm going to present this. None of us individually was on that uh, document, but gosh, I couldn't imagine having another committee, you know, doing this. We are just perfect. I mean, allow me to say that it's not modest, but uh, it's not time to be modest. So I want to mention the other members. They're Harold Gomez, Nilupa Ganaratna, Andrew Hartley, uh, Stephanie Ship, our dear Stephanie, Melania Young, and uh, Michael Horse. So it is through the discussion among all these passionate and devoted members that we can finally present to ASA the revised version of the guideline there we all very, very proud of. So uh, I would like to take this opportunity to mention that. Now, back to the question. So for myself, before serving on COPE, I basically thought of ethical practice as a collection of 
high-level principles. For example, integrity, honesty, objectivity, responsibility, trustworthiness, non-discrimination, transparency, accountability, etc. It's very high level. It's just a moral code. And after serving on COPE and getting deeply involved in the revision process, I understand that these high level principles must be mapped to low level guidance to be application specific. So in different scenarios, they're not always black and white. There's a gray area. And especially in these gray areas, we do need very specific applicable guideline for us to follow. So that made a big difference. And I want to echo Ron's earlier, the analogy using a lens. Now, now I find myself always have a lens on ethical practice when I work with people and educate my students. So that become one of my priority concern before and after serving on COPE. And that is some change I really find very valuable and make a difference and make me a better educator, a better researcher, and a better person. So thanks for that, Jing. And Stephanie, let's swing that over to you. In the intro to the ethical guidelines, there's a great quote that says, society benefits from informed judgments supported by ethical statistical practice. So as a data scientist, this mantra to me should be front and center of our work. And I, like Jing, feel really lucky to be on the ASA Committee on Professional Ethics, and I have Donna to thank for that. So thank you, Donna. <laughs> Being on the committee has definitely raised my awareness of ethics in my day-to-day -day work. And I talked a little bit about that before, but when I was introduced to the committee, I was just in awe of the members. Um, Jing, she was so eloquent, a steadfast leader. She was patient and creative in co-leading the team through that five-year update. But what she didn't mention is that the other COPE members could join those two-hour meetings on Tuesday. And we were welcomed. Our thoughts were heard. We could become part of the conversation. And yet the team, the, the core team, you know, stayed true. They showed up every Tuesday while the rest of us made it when we could. But it was such an awesome experience because each one of those members contributed substantially and thoughtfully to shaping the ethical guidelines. And they took it really seriously. What I thought was most important during that process and since then was this fact that they want the ethical guidelines to be what I call a living document. They want it to continue to grow and develop and be part of our professional organization, to be part of our professional ethos and part of our day-to-day -day life. And that was one of the reasons, as Donna had pointed out, we hosted two webinars in May and June to provide examples of how the guidelines apply both in industry and in academia and in government. And the webinars, just to put a plug in, are posted on the Committee on Professional uh, Ethics website. And I know I've had several requests for them as well, and people want to incorporate them into their classes or into their project work. So again, I just want to go back to the communications part, because I do feel like that is at the heart of these guidelines. And if you look through, there's explicit mentions of communications throughout, although I think there's explicit mentions, but then there's also almost every guideline is implicitly talking about that communication as well. It talks about encouraging constructive engagement, serving as an ambassador for statistical practice, ensuring all communications are consistent with the guidelines, and several more that is just you go through. They're just are things that 
are really important to deployment or, or making these ethical guidelines part of our day-to-day work. So Stephanie, I will second your acknowledgement of the working group and the whole committee, because as I remember those Tuesday afternoons, more often than not, the whole committee showed up. Uh, so, And so that was impressive. Also, what was impressive was it really was a wonderful model for your communication comment because everyone didn't always agree, but at the end, the issues got reconciled. It was a phenomenal experience. I might almost say that I missed those two-hour meetings, but... (laughs) Yes, I want to take this opportunity. I missed one important thing. Donna is always there. I'm so (laughs) impressed. Donna is our liaison member and uh, she's very silent but when we need a reference we when we need to ask about how ESA board gonna look at this or some other questions and she's so knowledgeable to answer those questions it's like our rock you know rock doesn't speak but it's always there to anchor us uh, I'm so grateful. It's like uh, we, we are a perfect team from work group, from the other committee members, from Donna or Lisa members. Uh, I cannot imagine there would be better team to do this. We are lucky. We are truly blessed with such a great team. We have not figured out how Donna gets everywhere. Well, speaking of getting places, my favorite question on the podcast um, has become how I can add to my reading, listening, or watching list. For me, it's mostly podcasts, I will admit, and books. So my TBR list is a favorite. So I'm going to start, Stephanie, with you and ask, what's on your list and what should be on mine? Well, first of all, I'm embarrassed to say I had to look up what TBR is. But now that I know, I was in California for about the last 10 days. And so this is my first day back at work. And I came into work and miraculously, this book was waiting for me that Kim Lyman, who works with me, knew that I would like. It's called The Sum of the People. And it's by Andrew Whitby. And it's how the census has shaped nations from the ancient world to the modern age. And so I flipped the book over and there's a quote from Ken Pruitt saying that Whitby instructs and entertains as he brilliantly travels across the census landscape, literally a tour de force. So, of course, I'm going to have to be, you know, starting to read this uh, right away as we're doing a lot of work on the census, but also just really fascinated by it after having read Margot Anderson's books and others about the census. So I'm excited to read this. And then just for fun, a friend of mine kept saying, oh, you have to watch this TV show, Ted Lasso. And I'm like, okay, you know. So I downloaded some for the flight and I was really getting tired. So I decided to watch them. Oh my gosh, I am completely hooked. (laughs) But it really got me thinking because he's such a positive and ethical manager. I mean, he stays true to himself. He does the right thing for his team. And all I could think about with preparing for this podcast is that he must have read part G of the ASA ethical guidelines that focuses on the responsibility of leaders. So I I have fun with that, but it is definitely a fun show if you don't know about it. That's great. Thanks. And Jing, what's on your TBR list or listening (laughs) list or watching list? Yeah, there are a couple of books I finished reading. It's more uh, relevant to our profession. It is called Hello World, Being Human in the Age of Algorithms by Hannah Fry. So this book gave me insights of, uh, you know, me as a data scientist, how to look at uh, some of the ethical issues 
of how to coexist with the influence of big data with algorithm. So they have tons of example. I really like it. Now, my favorite TV show is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I think that has something with my culture, you know, being a Asian woman, point out, I only speak for myself. There are very kind of different kinds of people from different culture, but my root is kind of being conservative, more modest, don't speak out. I used years to change that, and I find this show inspirational. Oh, a woman can be like that and make me more brave. Uh, you know, more outspoken. And uh, uh, of course, I cannot be like her, but uh, I can borrow some of her kind of uh, characteristic and uh, be a more fun person. Okay, that's for me. Well, thank you both for adding a lot to my list. And I will note that we will put a link to the committee's website in the show notes so that if folks want to check out the webinars or and the other resources that the committee makes available, they will have that link in the show notes. So with that, I will thank our guests and we will end with the tradition of Ron's top 10. So I'll turn it over to Ron. You bet. So we'll record that in a little bit, but I just want to say my wife and I love both of those that you mentioned, Ted Lasso. And if there were 50 more episodes of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I'd probably take a week off and watch all of them. But, but if you loved those, I just want to push in your direction, Stephanie and Jing, Only Murders in the Building. Oh, I've heard that's good. <laughs> Only Murders in the Building is absolutely charming and hilarious. And it's uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short at the, you know, at the peak of their craft. And then Selena Gomez is just, she's just amazing. And then when you watch it, there's just these cameos from people, just other well-known actors are in there and you'll enjoy, I'm sure. Well, thanks, Donna. And thanks again to Jing and Stephanie for a wonderful episode. It's October and we want to do something a little scary. So we envisioned a world in which I was absolutely in charge. Yep, that is terrifying. The idea of this thought exercise was to list what I would do if I had the power. So with that in mind, here are the top 10 reasons why I, Ron Wasserstein, should not be in charge of everything. Number 10, mute buttons would work on sentient beings. Number nine, every time a new streaming service is created, all streaming services have to lower their prices by at least 20%. There's just this plus and that plus, and how do we keep up with it all? Number eight, my opinions would be considered facts. That's very 2022. Number seven, the number seven reason why I should not be in charge of everything. No more use of statistical significance, but you knew I would say that. Number six, free tacos, and not just on Tuesdays. Number five, owners of sports franchises whose teams consistently lose more often than they win, would either have to suit up and play or sell the franchise. Number four, no more new iPhones until I've had mine for two years. You know, they just announced the new iPhone 14, and I know if I buy one, there'll be an iPhone 15 a week from now. Number three, people would be required to behave socially on social media. That's not asking that much. Number two, every seat on every plane is a first-class seat, but no one who tries to carry on luggage that clearly won't fit gets to fly. And the number one reason why I, Ron Wasserstein, 
should not be in charge of everything. No matter which podcast you link to, first you have to listen to Practical Significance. Well, that's it for this month's episode of Practical Significance. We will continue the conversation next month. Thank you for listening to this edition of Practical Significance, the podcast of the American Statistical Association. A new episode will be coming your way next month from Amstat News, the ASA's monthly membership magazine.